Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Our guest today is an obstetrician gynecologist whose philosophy to patient care is to practice from the heart, which is why in 2010 she established All Women's Care, a practice where the patient is seen as a holistic individual rather than a series of individual parts. She's the Medical Director of Labor and Delivery at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital and also holds full privileges at Good Samaritan Hospital, both local to Los Angeles, California. She speaks Spanish, Dutch, German, French, and Norwegian, which makes me feel bad about myself because I can barely eke out meaningful conversation in English. Dr. Bente Kaiser, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Wow, that's a lot of language, by the way. Thank you, yeah. It's just how I was brought up. Yeah, let's talk about how you were brought up, because you're a little outside the box. Yeah. My parents were actually artists, and they were struggling in Amsterdam in the 70s. It what was, kind of artists? Um, painters. Oh. Yeah. Visual artists. And um, it was kind of overcrowded in Amsterdam, so they moved to Norway, and I was born in Norway. Oh. So I went to elementary school in Norway, and um, when I was 12, my mother and I moved to Germany. Oh, so that's where you picked up German? Correct, yeah. And I finished my high school in Germany. Was it hard to, I mean, 12 is a is a rough age, I would think, to yeah. just start over in general, but also with a new language. It was really tough. I actually, um, I was kind of silent for three months before I opened my mouth. Just listening? Very much listening and then adapting to a, a proper German accent. Your yeah. patients say that you're a great listener. Do you think it started there? Um, I don't know. I had never thought about that, yeah. Hmm. Maybe it worked in your favor. So um, where did you go from Germany? From Germany, I went to Belgium to do my medical school. And um, from Belgium, when I graduated, I moved to New York. I took a year off during medical school to travel Central America. And um, I met my husband in Guatemala at the time. He's from L.A. And then we reconnected after I graduated medical school. And we lived in New York for eight years. And that's where I did my residency. Oh, wow. Did you always know that healthcare was what you wanted to do? I think so. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's coming from two artists. Uh, I would say the apple rolled away from the tree. <laughs> I really wanted to do something that um, at least I thought it was scientific or scientifically oriented. Um, 
which in the end, I, I think that medicine is not a very accurate science, but maybe more an art actually in the end. Well, it's probably a mix of art and science. Okay. And I mean, I was once at a conference where like the chief of medicine got up and he held up four fingers and he said, I can safely say we now understand about 4% of how the body works. And I was like, shame on him for exaggerating by 2%. Right. <laughs> I completely agree with that. Well, we just, we know so much more than we knew yesterday, but we also just know very little overall. I think that also that practices that we do today are maybe outdated tomorrow, right? And mm -hmm. so that we are, if we're like digging our heels in really hard today, that we might regret that tomorrow. Sure. And sometimes things change very quickly, like, you know, within obstetrics, which we'll talk about, you know, there's, there's something that's happening as a choice, it's a choice, it's a choice, and then one night that choice just disappears. Right. And then four years later, we're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't let that choice go. Right. But it's gone, and it's very hard to bring it, it back. Impossible to bring it back, right. When did you decide within your medical training that women's health or OBGYN was where you were wanting to be? I kind of knew that from the beginning. I wanted to work with women. I'm not entirely sure why. I just felt that they needed someone to kind of stick up for them. And so I've always wanted that in a way. Then when I was in medical school, I wanted to keep my options open. And so I wanted to make myself consider other things. So I wouldn't make a, a blind choice. And I never regretted sticking with women's health. Hmm. Did you learn English growing up? I did. I kind of, um, I went to a Waldorf school in Norway and oh, then wow. later also in Germany. And um, we learned English as a second language in Norway, so it's always been a second language. Because I was like, then you went from Germany to the U.S., <laughs> like, that must have been a whole new start. But you were able to speak right away. Yeah. You didn't have to listen no. for three months. How did your origins in OB go, like, when you, when you got into obstetrics, when you finally arrived where you wanted to be? What was the early days like? It was really crazy. Um, I was, you know, the first two years that I was in New York, I did basic science at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital mm -hmm. while I was taking my USMLEs. So I had acclimatized a little bit to the USA. And then when I matched, I matched in the South Bronx. And, um, you know, it was it was very tough. It was a rough neighborhood. It was an incredible diverse mix of patients, patients from Mali, uh, actually all over West Africa, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, from everywhere you can possibly imagine. And then there was a very diverse mix of residents as well, which was very interesting. And the hours were, you know, they were hard. And I think that it really shaped me to have to adapt to yet again a completely, it was very, it was very tough, I would say. It was definitely not an easy four years. And that's during your OB residency? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so during that time, you're doing obstetrics and gynecology? Yes, correct, yeah. And did it get easier as time went on? Um, I mean, as you are, like, going up through the ranks from being an intern to a second year, then a, you know, senior and a chief, things, I don't know about easier. I, I was pregnant in my chief year, so it, was, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't easy. Yeah. Uh, but it was more fun, you like to I think. work by example. <laughs> Um, and I mean, I really enjoyed the time too. It was, um, 
I was having a conversation one time with one of the midwives in my residency, and she said she's a little bit jealous of how we are immersed in what we do, but at the same time, she is worried about us because she sees that we don't get room to breathe. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really true. And I don't, it is also, I compared sometimes a little bit with uh, military training. Like you get trained to wake up in the middle of the night and be really good at what you do. But it's also taking a toll a little bit on the humane side of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing like that. But I started working in ambulances when I was 18. And so we didn't have that kind of rigorous training. But you do sort of have to just wake up and go and be yeah. totally alert. Uh, no time to stop and pick right. up some coffee. You just have to go. Exactly. So um, the residency also, because I'm not sure if people understand the medical school training because there's interns and residents and then fellows. uh as a resident, you're an MD. You're Correct. practicing yeah. medicine. You're mm-hmm. doing the things that any other medical doctor would mm-hmm. do. You're just doing them like 19 hours a day. Right. Exactly. Boom. Um, at that point, when you were doing your residency, it's kind of neat that you had such a diverse population to yeah, work with. Yeah, it was incredible. It was super fun. Absolutely wouldn't want to have done it anywhere else, but it was also the toughest time of my life, I would say, definitely. Yeah, and then I can't imagine also doing it while pregnant. Yeah, that was interesting, too. <laughs> <laughs> was What was it like to kind of, I mean, you're at the end of your OB specialty mm-hmm. training at that point. What was it like to go through it, like, after helping so many other people through it? I don't know. I mean, I felt very um, fearless in a way. And I thought a lot of people said, oh, you're an OBGYN now. Something will happen because that's what always happens to medical. Hmm. Yeah, I got that a lot. And and I, I never really let that get to me. And um, I had an unmedicated birth with my first child. And one of the midwives that I worked with during residency was with me, but more as a doula because I didn't deliver at the hospital right at my residency. And I felt incredibly supported. And so I, I never felt afraid or um, worried about the baby. I never felt I couldn't do it really. But I also never really thought about looking at the strip like I didn't look at it as a physician I really was you separated yourself I did I was the mom and when I think back on that I think that was kind of interesting that I was able to do that but there wasn't that much thought going into it really it just Mm -hmm. happened that's really cool because I've been a doula for midwives and for other doulas while they gave birth and generally speaking there are exceptions like you are but I think generally speaking, my observation is they have a very hard time separating their work, everything that they see and do and have been through supporting other people in their birth journey from their own. Like yeah. it's much harder for them to get out of their head and just let their neocortex shut off and right. let the instincts kick in. It yeah. happens. It's yeah, just it, it's, harder to get there. I, I just don't think I thought about it much. And That's it pretty just, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also kind of interesting that you were an OB and have having a doula at your birth and having an unmedicated birth. Yeah. I mean, we have an episode of our podcast with Dr. Jennifer Lang, who was an OBGYN when she was pregnant with her first, Mm -hmm. and she'd just become an OB, and she was so scared by her medical training, not by what she had seen, by what she had been taught. I know Jennifer well. Yeah, and she elected for a Mm. C-section. But in the middle of her pregnancy, changed course. Something happened that made her wonder, like, why am I electing for a cesarean? And um, 
she did hypnotherapy mm -hmm. to release all that fear that came through her medical training and then had this like epic water birth actually. Wow. At Cedar Sinai, which is not really allowed. But right. she checked herself and she was like, I'm nine centimeters. <laughs> I don't want to get out of the tub. So she told her husband, close the door. Wow. And um, just caught her kid in the tub over there. I need to have a conversation with her. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, that episode, if listeners want to hear it, is on prenatal nutrition because she wrote a book about it, but she yeah. shares her birth story over there. Uh, before we go to our first break, I do have this question. I don't mm -hmm. know how much you picked up in the European model of healthcare before you came here, but in your training, when you did your internship and residency here, did you feel differences between U.S. healthcare and European healthcare? I did. Um, in Europe, it is completely different. And of course, that's a long time ago for me. So things in Europe have changed since then as well. Mm -hmm. um, in Belgium, and I was doing my uh, medical training, it was seven years. It's currently six years. And in your last couple of years, in the last three years, you're actually actively participating in the care of patients. So it's very hands-on. You are also taking ER calls where you are the first-line responder mm. to at least a non super emergent, like if it's a heart attack, may, there is another physician right at your side. But anybody that comes in with a laceration or broken bone, you are primarily responsible for it. So the emphasis was on um, establish a diagnosis and order the tests and only the tests that are actually needed. What? Um, it, yeah, <laughs> right, what a concept. And there wasn't a lot of thought about liability. And I think it was a very healthy way to get trained. And then when we were in our residency, in the very first year already, I felt a lot of times my seniors would tell me things like, oh, you make sure you cover yourself because, you know, you don't want to be vulnerable to liability. That was that was a driving point. And, you know, there was definitely a point in my residency where I said to myself, I cannot function and practice from a point of fear. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Um if I feel like I need to give this patient a hug, I'm going to give her a hug. If I, see, if I think I need to tell this patient what I feel about this, then I just need to do that. And, of course, it's important to document things and to have a paper trail, et cetera, et cetera. That is just part of your job. But to think primarily from the point of what is this going to look like in a court of law, which we were as, as new first-year residents often taught to look at it as if you were in a court of law. And I just don't think that that's the right way to practice medicine. And that was a shock to me. Yeah. I think that's an excellent topic to open with in our second half, because uh, what I'd like to talk in the next segment is the relationship, the OB-patient relationship. Right. And uh, from the other side of the coin, how to find an obstetrician that's great for you. And what you just mentioned, I think, is one of the biggest factors in how doctors in general operate in our country. It's, uh, our, I think the model for USA should be CYA, unfortunately. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Bente Kaiser. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. 
This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Bente Kaiser. Let's talk about patient relationship with the OB. I think it's one of the most important things that when you pick your birth provider, an obstetrician or a midwife, it's somebody that you, A, have a really good relationship with, and B, that you've pre-thought some things that could come up later in the pregnancy and how they would address them with you. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of people have a neutral to negative relationship with their provider. And maybe it's a great provider, by the way, just not the right relationship. And then also don't really start to do research about things that could come up later until later happens. And then sometimes they feel like it's too late to swap. Right. So from your perspective as the obstetrician, what's the relationship that you're looking for? Well, it's very, very difficult to answer that question. I would like my patients, sometimes they apologize, for example, oh, I'm so sorry, I have all these questions. But I want them to ask the questions because the more we talk about things, the more it uh, normalizes it. Like, the more you feel that anything around birth is, is okay and normal to talk about, it's when it becomes discussable, it is comfortable. When it is something we can't discuss, it is very difficult to trust you because if you have if you have very little time I mean as we, obviously we are pressed as physicians and we have to see the next patient and I can't be on time in the room and also take my time with every patient so people will have to wait sometimes and most of my patients are very very understanding of that because they know that when I come in the room I'm really going to take my time with you I walk in the room and everything else disappears we're talking about you we're talking about whatever it is you need to talk about and that can be anything you know that can be um What's going on with your husband right now? Like, what? how do you feel? Why are you crying all day? You know, postpartum or prepartum, de- antepartum depression. What is happening with your other children? What? How is a sibling feeling about the pregnancy? There's so many things and so little time to talk. And I don't want any white elephants in the room because I want us to be a team in the end. And we're, I tell my patients, it's kind of like we're going to go on this, like, Mount Everest hike or, like, a tough trip, you know, and I'll be your guide and I'll do my best to get you there safely. Yeah, the sure. A bit of a Sherpa. (laughs) So those things that you're talking about are are more of a holistic approach. You're Mm -hmm. not just measuring the belly and peeing in a cup. You're you're looking at the organism as a whole. How are you feeling emotionally? How are you feeling physically in general? You know, um, how's your relationships and your nutrition and your health? Those things, I think, generally are thought of here in this country as more midwific things mm-hmm. that midwives talk to you about. Right. Um, and you're very pressed usually for time because the model is not really set up to spend a lot of time exactly. with people. Yeah. And um, especially within the insurance system, they don't pay you for time. Yep. So that comes out of your pocket. Exactly. You have to steal it. And then I think that also the system set up to make patients feel like they work for us. 
And I always have to remind them, Mm -hmm. I work for you. If there's something that you want to do, we'll do it. If there's something that you don't want to do, we, we don't do it. And as a doula, sometimes at the hospital, it's the same thing. They're very much made to feel like, can I do this? May I do this? Am mm-hmm. I allowed to do this? But it's like, you're the birth. We all work for you. Yeah. And you can't tell by the clothing because she gets this little, you know, right. snappy gown that can go at any moment with the wind. And the doctor gets this cool scrubs and lab coat. If you turned it around, the clothing, mm-hmm. <laughs> then she would feel like, you know, it's all about her. Right. So I think a lot of things about the hospital make you feel that way. But it's really important for people to understand that it's about you. You're you're the patient. We all work for you. And it yeah. sounds like that's what you do in your practice. I do. And I also want them to understand we're working together. Like, I want you to exercise. You know, I want you to eat healthy. I want you to take care of yourself. And I also want you to work with me when we need to go. What would you say if someone's looking for an obstetrician? Sadly, not everybody is right around here. Mm-hmm. But if they're looking for an obstetrician wherever they live, what are some of the questions maybe at the beginning that would be good to ask to get a sense if it's going to be a good relationship? I think people will expect me to say, like, what is your C-section rate? Mm-hmm. But I think that you should ask how many people are in your group and um, who covers you when you're not there. Mm -hmm. I get that question, um, and I'm happy that they ask me that question because it is so difficult when you have a certain philosophy to find someone to work with. And so it is a big issue, and I come for almost all my deliveries, and it makes my life difficult, you know, but I want that until I find someone I can join my practice that has a similar philosophy, and I hope that happens sometime mm-hmm. in the future. So do you not at this point have a backup who's like you? I I have a person that can back me up when I'm on a vacation or even like, for example, tonight. Then he will do the things that I know that I, I can trust him doing the things that I would do mm-hmm. with my patient and make them feel comfortable and happy and give them choices and autonomy the way I intend that to happen, um, but it's very difficult to have a partner in your practice, another physician, a younger physician especially, that is willing to join a private practice that is a solo doctor, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you look for your own provider mm-hmm. uh, to be your obstetrician or gynecologist, what are things that you look for in particular um, from the other side? Yeah, I mean, I did look for convenience and who who was in the practice besides the one that I really wanted and what would happen if she wasn't on call. And, you know, I wanted to meet the other doctors and make sure that I was comfortable with all of them. Um, it's interesting that now that I'm a mom and a much more experienced physician, I think much more about it than when I was fresh out of residency and pregnant or like delivering still as a chief. Do you think more about what you would look for or you think about? I think what is how vulnerable we are and what, I mean, I was, I happened to have a good group in New York and I was very happy, but how easily I could have chosen someone that may not have been as okay with me pushing as long as I did, for example, or I may have been pushing um, interventions more strongly. You know, I, I didn't know as much despite having been in the residency about the autonomy and choice part that I do now. And I, I sometimes feel that I'm, I'm happy that my patients trust me because I know how little options they can also be given sometimes. 
Right. So some things that I think that like end of pregnancy scenarios that uh, kind of give you an idea mm-hmm. of where your doctor falls on the, let's say, patiently waited out versus jump into intervention. Mm-hmm. And again, I think some people like the jump into intervention from their doctor and mm-hmm. other people like the more hands-off approach. So it's really about finding the match that's right for you. Mm-hmm. But Things like you said, like, do you have a time limit on pushing? Do you have a time limit on labor in general? Do you have a time limit on due date, you know, when when labor starts? What are my options if the babies breach at the end? You don't know until the last month. Right. And you wouldn't think to ask in the first month. So those are questions that I think that sometimes, you know, uh, if my water breaks, what do, you know? What are my options, and how long do I have? Exactly. Things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think I mean all those um, scenarios are very individualized to me. I have so many stories about you know one patient broke her water, and I don't have a time limit when you have to come actually. Um, but if you're GBS positive, I also want to keep you safe. So I do want a prophylaxis on board if you have broken your water. But you could, for example go to triage and then get your antibiotics and then walk or you buy yourself some more time right um but this particular patient she called me in the morning and she said i broke my water but i don't want to come in and i didn't feel like pushing her i didn't feel that i was right for her and i said okay that's fine i'm really busy so why don't you come at the end of the day sometime like 5 p.m 6 p.m and i love this story because she said okay i'll call you then and she didn't. And so we called her when everybody was seen in the office. It was probably around 6 o'clock. And she said, I'm not ready to come. I'm going to go for a walk. And I said, okay, that's fine. You know, you feel your baby moving. She's like, yep, and they don't have any contractions. So she went for a walk. I don't know what she did. I don't know where she went. Because an hour later, she called me, and she was in, like, intense contractions. And she was ready to come. Mm-hmm. And she came, and um, she came around 7.30 and delivered like maybe 45 minutes after. Wow. (laughs) Yes. And I was just happy that I I never at that point felt like I had to kind of tell her, you must come in. Like, why would she have to come in right away? She was GBS negative. Her baby was moving. The water that she had seen was clear. I could have been overreacting. I could have said, oh, you have to come in. We have to monitor you. I just didn't feel that was right for her. Mm -hmm. She was very healthy, super fit, and had a great delivery, and there was no fear-based decision-making. There was no pressuring each other. It just felt right for her, you know? For another patient, I don't know. Maybe I would have made a different decision, Mm -hmm. but I think that we had a trust relationship established, and it felt really comfortable, and it was good. Yeah, so, I mean, that approach is individualized care, and taking things on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes when you're at three weeks, five weeks, seven weeks into your pregnancy, say, you know, how late can I go past my due date? And the answer is 40 weeks and three days. But what's that based on? Right. It's not an individualized answer. It's uh, everybody has to fit into this box. Right. And so that's a type of relationship that I think people look for but sometimes don't find. Yeah. And I mean, I know that, for example, when you do the delivery and you look at the placenta afterwards, every single placenta looks differently. 
Mm-hmm. And um, all four every, of my kids look totally different. Exactly. I've never to this day seen two of the same deliveries, mm-hmm. right? That's what I tell my patients too. But when you're looking at the placenta, they can be entirely calcified and have all these infarcted areas in them, or they can be very healthy. And that can happen at 41 weeks. Now, we have to also not ignore the data. We know that after 40 weeks, you know, things do start to deteriorate within that placenta. It cannot live forever. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you're looking at how healthy a person is, how well that baby is doing and how close she is to having spontaneous onset of labor, I think you can make a plan that's going to feel good for both. And it doesn't have to be 40 weeks and three days. It doesn't have to be 39 weeks and six days. It can be 41 weeks and three days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would not want to push it too far because um, an induction also needs time if it's done right. I don't think you can push an induction and then expect to have the baby eight hours later, for example. So if you're starting the induction after 41 weeks, you have to have a baby and a placenta that can tolerate a long process for induction. So just one more question before we take our last break, which is what happens if you're at the end of a pregnancy and then you're just starting to realize you're not on the same page with your provider? I think that's a really, really hard place to be. I don't really advise anybody to change at the very end unless they're really uncomfortable because also if you just stop your care, a lot of times you don't get accepted in other offices, Mm -hmm. you know, because... If you are already 40 weeks or close to 40 weeks pregnant, people don't know you. That's from a provider side, the same thing. You want to know kind of what's going on with that patient. You don't want to just accept someone out of the blue. You don't know what happened. You might not have records. And I know that that's a danger out there. So I would say before you just change plans completely at the end, just be, be aware early on. Ask the tough questions early on. You know, don't accept, I don't have time for an answer ever. Um, well, that bring, could be your clue right there. Right, exactly. Bring your spouse, bring your doula to a visit, you know. Mm-hmm. I love it when the doulas come along because it ends up always being an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's fun, you know. It can be nice. and or, or your mom or your sister or bring someone else in there. And if you can think of the questions in the visit, write them down beforehand because a lot of my patients will look at me and I'll be like, I forgot all my questions right now, but I had like 12 of them before you left. <laughs> Probably more so in pregnancy. (laughs) Uh, We're going to take one more break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Bente Kaiser. (laughs) Hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking with Dr. Bente Kaiser. Now, you are an advocate for options. Right. In an environment where options are running out. You're a little bit outside the shrinking box of options. 
Um, <laughs> one of them that you've been advocating for recently is water birth. Tell me about that. So I see a rift between the medical field and the hospitals and the patients. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm basically on the outside everywhere I go, and that's fine. But, <laughs> but I am trying to just bring us all a little bit closer because I do want the safety of the hospital for my patients at least. Also consider that if you have a really low C-section rate, that still is around 11 to 12%. And I like to walk it all the way to the end, which is why I'm not a midwife. I am, I'm an obstetrician because I want to bring it all the way to where it needs to go. And then we have a baby, whichever way that ends to be. But I do want to start with the least intervention. And sometimes I call myself a minimal uh, invasive obstetrician because I did a fellowship in minimal invasive GYN surgery after residency. Huh? And I'm kind of laughingly say I'm, I'm, you know, now doing minimal invasive obstetrics. Uh, obstetrics. <laughs> right, but obstetrics mostly happens by itself. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. And that's what I, I think a lot of even the nurses don't realize. We medicalize the pregnancy and, and basically make people scared of going to the hospital. And so instead of giving them options and doing things within the hospital that can lead to a normal outcome and maintain a normalcy of birth, we alienate our patients by taking away, depriving them options. And I think my my biggest red tape has been, oh, the ACOG bulletin says, and the AAP bulletin says. But, you know, knowing these bulletins full well, and obviously I know every single word in the ACOG bulletin by heart because mm-hmm. people have quoted it so many times to mm-hmm. me. ACOG um, is the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Right. So they make recommendations to OBGYNs yes. on, but, but they're mostly on making recommendations on what's in your best interest. I think that there really are also in the patient's interest, but we see them. But if there's a hierarchy, it's your best interest first um, and patient's best interest second. Possibly so. And I, I don't so. like I don't that. think that they're anti- Women or anti-patient or anti-birth, but their job is to protect you. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's where it starts, right? That's back to in residence, how you get trained. Yeah, exactly. And I see ACOG as a guiding body rather than as this is what you have to do. They're not telling us we have to do a certain way. They're just guiding us. Like this is how we recommend. Exactly. And so they're not law. No, they are not law. And I don't think they mean to be law either. Mm-hmm. I think they just mean to say, this is what we consider evidence-based medicine. But now years have gone by, and in Europe, and also in the United States, water birth has been done. And it's done in many different forms, right? So if we can do it safely with good protocols and a good patient selection, I think that is so much better than if it's done randomly by patients because they're so afraid of going to the hospital, Mm -hmm. so afraid of bringing issues up to the doctor, that they're staying at home where it would be possibly better for them to be in the hospital in a safe environment in the sense that if you did need an intervention, it's right there for you. Then you do not have to get in an ambulance and then be transferred for at least 30 minutes and then arrive somewhere where nobody knows you. And where people actually also, it's sad to say that they may judge you for having been at home, which just makes that rift even bigger. I mean, it needs to come together. We have to work together. It's a small beginning to offer water birth in the hospital. It's actually done in other hospitals in the United States. We're not like... We have a hospital here that used to sort of do it. California Hospital still offers that. Yeah, so Um, it just seems less common than it was. Well, I'm shocked, actually, that it's not done in L.A. in many hospitals because L.A., 
we are a, an urban area, a lot of young people, a lot of people that know their options and know their choices. But did you have any water birth training in your residency? You know, interesting that you ask because we had actually a thriving midwifery practice in the smack South Bronx, and they did water birth in my residency. Oh, so you were exposed to it. But I think most, right. most OBs didn't get that kind of training. True. So it's it's not even something they feel comfortable with, and yeah. it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. But I, I will say this, a few things. Number one, I can't tell you how many times I'm present at an out-of-hospital birth, either in a birthing center or a home birth, with somebody who's 100% sure they don't want to deliver in a hospital, but not even 2% sure they want to deliver outside the hospital. Right. So they're delivering there, but they're not comfortable there mm-hmm. because they're so sure they don't want to be in a hospital the way they, they perceive hospital birth. Right. Part two is I think that people need to give birth where they feel most safe and most comfortable. So for some people, that would be in a hospital, in the hospital that you're trying to create, um, for sure. And then for other people, it would still be at home. So I think that for that person, that there's a good chance that they're safer delivering at home or in a birthing center because they'll be so much more relaxed and comfortable. Right. And especially if they're not too far from a hospital, and especially if they have a doctor who's willing to back them up so that should they want or need to transport, then there's a continuity of care there. I totally think there is a place for home birth. And that's why I back up um, a few select midwives that do home births. Mm -hmm. And I know their patients well. I know their practice as well. And I know they will transfer when there is a need for transfer, and they will not... Which is what makes home birth safe. Exactly. Yeah. But my quest is to make the hospitals, or my hospital in particular, because I don't know a single hospital in L.A. that I think is 100% this is where you should go to have your baby. I, I'm just trying to create a place where people would feel safe to come, mm-hmm. even if it was for a transfer, you know? And, and not just for water birth, but for options in general. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I look a lot of times at European models, and there is some places that do an amazing job, make it really beautiful and also functional, um, where they have, and it's this is like the easiest thing on the planet, to make a, a hook in the ceiling even for a rebozal sling. Mm-hmm. Why can't we do that in every single LDR, you know? Even if you're using it for half an hour during your birth, that might just be the most relieving thing for you at that moment. Why can't that just be an option? Why can't we have a tub in every single LDR, even if you don't want to do a water birth necessarily? You can just relax for an hour. Mm -hmm. You might want to do many different things, you know. Personally, I don't have experience with nitrous oxide, but why not have that as an option? It might just be the thing for you, Mm -hmm. you know. Rather than cookie cutter say, hospitals are bad, home births are good, or hospitals are good, home births are bad. I don't think that because, again, like you said, we are not all alike. No, but I think the perception is home birth, you have autonomy, hospital, you give up everything when you walk in the door. Right. The moment you put on that gown, your autonomy is gone. And that's what I'm trying to work against or prevent. Well, I hope you're successful at that. Thank you. Um, you know, some of the hospitals that I work at, I feel like have put a lot of effort into trying to mm-hmm. be more open and accommodating and sensitive to various birth plans and choices. Progress is just really slow sometimes. And yeah. despite all the effort. And I think, you know, big corporations and sadly not in a non-liability vacuum move really slowly. But I hope that in general and specifically with you that there is success in what you're trying to do. But I think even just your approach, the way you have it now is refreshing. Thank you. 
Um, on that note, tell us about All Women's Care. All Women's Care, um, we started this. I have a business partner. Um, she's a PA. And so we started right off the bat being kind of an odd, you know, couple out there. We created it from scratch, completely on a shoestring, very idealistic, um, with absolutely no idea how to run a business. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we started in South Central, actually, and ran into all sorts of very crazy situations. We had a sublease going. Our sublesser was being evicted. We had to take over. We were now running this office in South Central. At the same time, we were subleasing uh, Wilshire, close to Good Samaritan. Then we became kind of popular in our in our Good Samaritan space. We couldn't possibly have both, but we did for years actually have both locations. And then we were asked to come to Hollywood Presbyterian and work more closely with the hospital as all women's care. And part of the idea, at least my part, was to help shape this hospital. I saw a possibility to really make a difference and be part of a hospital and at the same time be able to bring that hospital closer to its community. And I think that they're actually willing. There's political will to do that. And at the same time, there's cultural resistance to do so. But that was how All Women's Care basically started. It was Jennifer Huddleston and myself and a lot of sweat, tears, and work. Well, I've been honored to work with uh, several of your patients, uh, sort of like a distant co-care during and after pregnancy, and it's just so refreshing how supported they feel, even quote-unquote little things like seeing them before six weeks postpartum, you know, three or four weeks postpartum. It's just uh, outside the box. Do you have that same approach to gynecology? I kind of do. Um, with Julianne, because I did that fellowship in minimal invasive Julianne surgery, I think my mentor at the time, his mantra was, do as little as possible. If you know your limits, that is what I want to teach you, basically. Oh, my God, my kids have that philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> like, clean up your room. I don't know, do a minimally invasive here. But, you know, sometimes the best choice is not having surgery at all. You know, that's the least invasive of everything. Truth. So if I can convince somebody to get a Mirena IUD for their bleeding and keep the uterus, I will do that. Well. Oh, yes. um, we, during the break, said how quickly the time went, and um, there's so much more to talk about. So I hope and pray that you'll come back and be a guest again. In the meantime, where can we find you online? Um, allwomenscarela.com is our website. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining me and for sharing you. Thank you. And at home, thanks for listening. If you'd like more of this type of programming, visit us online at informedpregnancy.com. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. 
This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.